Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest, talking about his sixth feature film, is Neil Marshall. Welcome to the show. Hello there. Good to be here. Before we get into any details, do you want to uh, give people a brief synopsis to what The Reckoning is all about? Uh, the Reckoning is um, set, ironically, it's set in 1665, the year of the Great Plague. We shot it a year before any of this happened, so like, it is a, a, a tragic case of life imitating art. Um and, and just astonishing timing. Uh, but it deals with, it's not about the plague so much, that's the backdrop. It deals with the um, some of the repercussions of the plague, which was the witch hunts and the fact that the devil and witches were being blamed for the plague and such like. And, it, and uh, the story focuses around a character called Grace Haverstock, a recently widowed farmer's wife who is falsely accused of being a witch. And uh, they bring in the uh, head witch hunter, um, uh, who's called John Moorcroft, played by Sean Pertwee, and uh, to put her through a series of trials and tribulations. And it's kind of to do with not only the physical trials and tribulations she has to go through, but the psychological and emotional and religious trials and tribulations she goes through um, and the breakdowns that she suffers and ultimately comes around to her getting revenge on all her persecutors. Indeed, indeed. In, in violent fashion. In, very much so, very much so. And when and how can people see the film? Hi, this is Stuart, the host, just cutting in as this interview was recorded back in January when the release date for The Reckoning was the middle of February and was delayed owing to the pandemic, as many other films have in the last 12 months or so. And just to say that The Reckoning is in cinemas and on digital from the 16th of April 2021. Doing it against the backdrop of the play and having a film come out during the pandemic, it's interesting from a characterization point of view that the way people apply logic to what is their what is their stake in anything has got nothing to do with truth or fact and everything to do with their own personal priority and personal gain. Absolutely. There's a, there's a mirror yeah. that hasn't changed, has it not? It's view at all. Well, no, and that's that's you know the, the, the you know one of the reasons that we we made this film, Charlotte and I wrote this film together was. What, the more research that we did into the witch hunts and the, the great plague and the stuff that was going on then, it was like, it just felt like a mirror of what was happening today. The, you know, the, the persecutions and the yeah, misogynistic attitudes and everything like that is still absolutely prevalent today. Um, you know, pile of plague on top of that. Um, but it just seemed incredibly relevant. Um, and, you know, it was, although it wasn't entirely women, it was, you know, the astonishing figures of, nearly half a million women who are, you know, um, tried, tortured and executed for a crime, which ultimately doesn't actually exist. Mm. Like, okay. I mean, you have your kind of your Wiccans and witches in 
of a sort, but nobody's flying around on broomsticks and turning people into frogs. You know, it's, it's a purely fictitious crime invented by men in order to subjugate women. And, uh, and I just found that fascinating. And that's why we set out to sort of make this movie now. And it's, it's a period in time that, that is, um, that seems to be sort of rich for the horror genre, isn't it? It's like other parts of history, we get like real sort of strict adaptations of the, the politics of the families, whereas the Witchfinder, the Witchfinder period and the plague is just, this is where the horror is. This is where the horror is in our, in our, uh, in our rich history. I think so, because it, it was that whole age of the Puritanism and such like. It mm. was, you know, it, it, everything, the undercurrent, that's a subversive undercurrent of, of evil and, and debauchery and such like, I think has a better place there. It's the equivalent later on of like Victorian era when mm. everything was like subjugated and, and, and you know, and, and brought out the darkness in people. And so you, you say you, you, you co-wrote this with uh, Charlotte Kirk, who stars in the movie. Um, yeah. What, what's the what's the process for the pair of you? Are you does one of you go away and write it, and the other one do it? Are you sat in the room together? Is it what's your approach? Well, I do uh, I do the kind of physical writing of it, but mm-hmm. it's a com- it's, but that happens after multiple you know research and discussions and hammering out ideas, and then I'll write something, and then we'll read it together. And then we'll bounce ideas backwards and forwards, and then she'll she'll throw in something that I would, I like would never think of in a million years, and it'd be like wow I never saw that one coming, and you go back and re- redraft it and things like that, and so it's a, it's a, it's a really fun collaboration of ideas. I mean it was it was kind of her who threw in the idea of like what if there's no witches in the whole movie, and 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 at that because up to a point it was kind of like well is she going to be a witch isn't she going to be a witch, and. Uh, and, and I suppose the film itself maybe leaves that open to a certain amount of debate. But mm. uh, when we were writing it, it was kind of like, yeah, what if there's no witches in the actual movie? It's a film about uh, witches and witchcraft that doesn't have any witches or witchcraft in it, technically speaking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She doesn't. She, she her her crime is to not give herself to a man for a debt she can pay. Yeah, basically. Yeah, and the things that women were like. The, the reason that women were, were targeted or whatever was because they were, they had ginger hair or they had freckles or because they were old or because their neighbor had an issue with them or because, you know, they made some like herbal tea. You know? mm. There's any number of reasons why uh, things like that were going on. And then like, and, and, you know, along the way we found out like some really bizarre facts, which I, 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 it's, it's hinted at in the movie where it's mentioned in the movie, but um, the notion that, People were so scared of witches creating the plague that they started to kill cats because cats were the familiars of witches. Right. So there was during 1665, there was like a mass slaughter of cats. Little did they know, of course, the cats were killing the rats. So when they were killing all the cats, they were allowing the rats to spread even further and spread the plague further. They, 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 I love the irony in that. <laughs> the heritage in this country, if you draw it, you can probably draw a line then from those people killing cats. To the anti-maskers, absolutely, <laughs> and and the anti the the the, uh, the COVID idiots as they as they've been named, yeah, they, they were the original COVID idiots, <laughs> slaughtering cats. <laughs> it's it's interesting how belief affects people, um, and and how I, I love that I love the fact that you you use the supernatural as a as a as a revenge to those that say they believe, but. Whether they believe or not is neither here nor there. Like you've already said, it's more about power, subjugation, and oppression of the poor and the stupid. Yeah. 
So then when faced with something absolutely evil that is inhuman, they've then got only fear itself to fall back on. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. And, and, and I also had kind of fun, you know, when we were, when we were creating, the, the, there's kind of two bad guys in it. Mm. And I love the, 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 the difference of bad guy philosophies mm. of you've got one, you know, Sean Pertwee's character who is a true believer. And, you know, and, and from one point of view, it's like what he does is, is unbelievably horrific and, and terrible, mm. but he absolutely believes what he's doing is right. He believes it's done in the name of God. He, he pities um, Grace and he wants to free her soul and all this kind of stuff. So he believes what he's doing is right. Whereas um, Steve Waddington's character, Pendleton, the, the local squire, um, he's just he's just your full-on sadist. He's He just wants to subjugate people, wants them to suffer. And it's a totally different philosophy. And they're not necessarily on the same page at all about it. It's like he just wants to see a torture and he enjoys that. Whereas... Sean Perry is like his character is like the torture serves a purpose. Yeah, he's so, doing he's um, doing God's work, isn't he? He he really believes yeah, he is. He believes yes, yeah. Now he's he's a he's a brilliant Sean Sean is someone you've worked with before. And um Yes, indeed. He brings a lot to the character of Moorcraft. Oh, he certainly does. And it was, you know, it was I mean, obviously first of all, it was such a joy to get to work with him again. Yeah. So it's been a while. Um, you know, last time was Doomsday. So um just to you know, after such such a pleasure working with him on Dog Soldiers, then on Doomsday, where I got to you know, kill him in spectacular fashion, <laughs> um, to get to, to 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 get to work with him again after so many years and do a very very different kind of role. You know, he's kind of one of the villains in this this, but he brings so much to the table. You know, he brings so much um, to thought and ideas to it, and the costumes and the, the way he behaves, his mannerisms, and everything. It's just wonderful. To I was going to say, so so in that sense, that. In terms, and that voice, of course. But in terms of what you and Charlotte wrote on the page, in terms of what who he is and what he says and what he does, what then did he start to do when the camera was rolling that that gave something to Moorcroft that you you pair you hadn't imagined yourselves. Um, I, always, I I always think that it's like that you know the writer brings like half the game and then the actor brings the other half the game mm. and when it works well that like creates like an amazing whole and you know the two things gel and, and work really well off each other and then when it doesn't when you when when something's miscast it's because they're bounced they're, they're it's like it's like two magnets you know they either they either <laughs> attract or or, or, or don't um, and I think in this case it absolutely did um, you know and and so Sean was just. You know, it was just like watching magic happen every time you set your call action and uh, you, you look at your script there and, okay, we've got something of the character there, um, you know, but it's all happening there on screen. And, uh, yeah, it's just a joy. Now, I keep seeing Steve Pendleton in in, um, in various period stuff. I almost believe now that he was born in the wrong era. He does fit naturally into that kind of thing, doesn't he? He has a he has a kind of puffed up chest, which which makes you believe that he was born to do summer. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I always remember him from Last of the Mohicans, um, so it was you know, and and just to get this fabulous Yorkshireman in there was just just what we needed. Uh, we never really say where the film is set. Yeah, it's all it's, it's non specifically north somewhere, maybe. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and Steve brought that as the local squire with his wonderful Yorkshire um, tones. Indeed, uh, indeed, lends lends way to the role. Sure. Um, what would you, what would you say was the um, especially especially having the two kind of very different antagonistic forces, and clearly 
Grace is the hero of the, of the film. What were the main sort of storytelling challenges then in getting that balance right between what she's up against and what they're trying to plot, as it were? Um, obviously, it was like, because, you know, Grace is in virtually every scene with a, like, only a couple of exceptions. So it's channeling that, that the performance all the way through because obviously we didn't shoot it in order um, and, and the journey that she takes. Mm. Um, not wanting to, you know, and this was this was when we were writing it as well. It's like I had no intention of or desire to do a torture movie, despite the fact that this is it deals with torture, um, because I, I have no interest in watching somebody get tortured for two hours. Hmm. Um, it was always that I wanted to uh, take it to a certain place and then just let the audience fill in the blank kind of thing. It's like you suggest what's going to happen. And then we leave it and then we go to something else or we come back to the aftermath, but we never actually just like sit and watch somebody get tortured. I, I, I don't even think audiences want to watch that either. No, it's, you, you, the mind's eye, the mind's eye does enough of a job there. I think with those. Exactly. And you, you just need to apply enough. So, you know, there were challenges of like how, how far do we take it? How, you know, when do we cut that, you know, that cutoff point? Um, but that was the main thing was like the whole through line for grace and everybody else is like satellites was, you know, revolving around that central performance, um, and bringing their own strengths to that as well. So, you know, it's, it's, as with all these things, it's a juggling game. You're spinning plates and juggling at the same time, you know? And, and with it, with it, with it not being, with it being a witch film without really a witch in it was, was the supernatural sort of element of it always there or was that in was that something that was a a movable feast in the development of it the supernatural element was always going to be there for sure yeah i always wanted that there and you know to to bring it in as a um as much a you know is it psychological is it real i wanted to play those kind of games with an audience and 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 various people you know people read the script and they assume they take the devil to be as real as could be and others are like well clearly it's a figment of her breakdown um and I, I you know i don't want to say which is which mm. I, i'd rather leave that to people's own interpretation of the movie but uh it was always going to be there in some form or another and i i, I like i think with the same with descent is like um it evolved as we were making it to sort of put put suggestions and and hints and tones and stuff like that in there you add those layers to it as you're making it really that weren't on the on, mm. on the page now you, you mentioned there about about um, about shooting out of order, which obviously is not unusual. Um, but when you've got sort of scenes with such sort of heightened moments of you know literally pain, as well as mm-hmm. as well as emotion, how do you balance that across a kind of out of a non-linear shoot? You know where you've got to, you've got to know where the emotion of the scene is. The actors have got to know, and and the conversations you have go up and down as well. How, how, how do you, how, any tips for directors listening in on how you sort of help make, maintain the, the sort of integrity of each scene, even though it's not running, running into each other? I don't know specific tips. I mean, everybody knows the score. It's very rare that you actually get to shoot anything in story order. Mm. Um, I, I was lucky enough to do that on um, Dog Soldiers and The Descent for the most part, not entirely, but for the most part, um, and that was very, very lucky. There was no way we could do that on this with schedules and different actors coming and going and different sets being needed and such like. But I think you know everybody knows the script. Everybody knows what they're going in for. Everybody's well. Hopefully, everybody has like planned very thoroughly before they show up on set that day. Mm. And 
it tends to be broken down into chunks of of moods or thoughts or feelings or whatever. So you don't tend to go from like within the space of a few minutes, go from like a big comedy scene to a, a drama scene. It's like um, that might be two separate days, you know, that you have something a bit lighter or something very different emotionally and then something very different the next day. Right. Because scenes takes a certain amount of time to film and the more emotional or complex the scene, the longer it takes to film anyway. So it tends to break into blocks rather than moments on the set. And I think that makes it a lot more manageable. Mm. And and um, in sense of going, finding the place to shoot, um, which find a general ear of Britain, where did you, where did you find you took your cameras and your equipment and your crew? Um, well, initially we scouted, uh, Wales. We were scouting a lot of Wales for mm-hmm. it. Uh, but the one thing that we could never find was the village that the story was going to take place in. Okay. Um, and then at some point, I literally, I did some Google Earth scouting. Um, <laughs> I, I, I did a bit of Google, Google searching and then got on Google Earth and had to look at some places from the air. Um, and I'd found a, a back lot in Hungary that um, had an entire kind of medieval... Tudorish town and a castle and a tavern and literally like maybe ninety percent of the sets wow. that we needed were <laughs> in in a very rough infrastructure. There, I mean, our, our production designer Ian Bailey um, came in and and overhauled everything to a large degree, hmm. um, but the foundations were there, yes, and that saved us a huge amount of money and and things that we we would never have been able to do otherwise, like. Um, it, I think the locations that we were shooting in would have had restrictions as far as working in a real castle with fire and death and blood and stuff like that. Whereas it was upset. So, um, so he did an incredible job in transforming these things uh, and, and, and transforming these sets and just making them look because obviously like, so this place in Hungary, uh, it's a backlot. It's been around since the eighties and has been used on so many things. And so every time that a film goes in there, you've got to change it a little bit. You've got to kind of make it your own. And, um, you know, I think the last uh, crew that had been in there had left everything looking very immaculate and it had very kindly revamped some of it for us, which was good. Um, and then Ian went in and, and then just kind of dressed down everything and made, he because he wanted to feel that the plague was infecting the buildings and the ground and the earth and everything as well. So everything was rotten and mm. infected and, 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 uh, and fascinating. You know, he brought this fascinating look to it. So it was, yeah, incredible that way. And then, then at the end of the day, we only really had to build the major, the major build that we had to do was the, um, the cottage that they live in at the beginning uh-huh. because we were going to burn that down. So um, that had to be a build. And like, as you know, I, I think the first, 20 pages of the script take place in this thing. So it was an important set. And uh, Ian, once again, did a beautiful job with a totally authentic looking environment that he created. So, yeah, there's uh, that, the particularly that, that, I think it's the first time when, uh, when Grace goes into the local tavern and she's sort of clearly one of the, you know, the only civilized women to enter into the place before. And uh, yeah. you get the, you get the seediness the moment, the moment she looks around the place. Well, I, I also like, uh, um, I think when I wrote it, the intention was to shoot it in winter. And I was thinking, oh, I'm going to shoot it in the UK. It's going to be in winter. Let's have it all rainy and bleak and gray and do that. Mm. Very, very kind of typical British thing mm. for that kind of movie. And as it turned out, we ended up filming in Hungary in the height of summertime. 
Um, and as so, uh, you know, preparing for that, knowing, okay, it's going to be sun scorched days. It's going to be dry. It's going to be very hot, which it, all of which it was. I thought, okay, what kind of tone can I bring to this that would be different from the similar kind of British movie? So immediately I started thinking like once upon a time in the West, I started thinking Westerns basically. Mm. Uh, it was like once upon a time in the West meets Wishfinder General. Because <laughs> um, I looked at the costumes, I looked at the big hats and the horses and thought, what we've got here is a Western basically. And this woman is the farmstead, you know, it's the farmstead and the farmsteader, you know, riding into town and the local saloon, with all the ne'er-do-wells and the streets of the, the town. So I was just like, let's, let's make a Western. Let's just apply all those kind of Western. It's obvious now you've said it. It's obvious. Yeah. It's really obvious now you've said it. I hadn't, it hadn't crossed my mind, but yeah. Yeah. So that was kind of a way to embrace the fact it was going to be hot and sunny and dusty. Um, and also like we, you know, we checked the history books and there was a heat wave that year, which didn't help with the, the spread of the plague, but there was a heat wave that summer so it's like oh well it makes sense now <laughs> so if, if you were imagining that idea if you if you'd originally had this vision which was this like gray skies of britain and then you get to summer hungry and you've got once upon a time in america to confront you with how does that change your conversations with say luke bryant your cinematographer what are you what are you saying to each other about the look and feel of of capturing that best by the time that we Hired Luke. We knew we were heading toward a summer shoot anyway. Okay. So I'd already I'd already started to t- change my approach. Got you. And it, it, it was as simple as like going through the script and changing things from you know grey rainy day to <laughs> hot sunny day um, and things like that, just so that when people read it they understood the approach. Mm. But you know, but also like with costume department, you know, we I I, you know, I said for for Charlotte's character when she's riding into town, let's have her wear like her husband's dust coat and. Um, and hat and stuff like that. So she has this, and although it, and, and although it's all very kind of authentic to the period, it does have that Western flavor to it as well. Mm. So it just uh, it just added to the whole effect. There's something really sort of iconic, isn't there, about a uh, a person on horseback coming into shot? It's uh, yeah, it's when Charlotte Charlotte learned to ride from scratch for the movie, so she could do her own riding and stuff like that, and she loved that. But it was that was a great thing to be able to get to do, you know? Yeah. So how how, how and it was that? important because uh, well it's it, I, I find it really important because I've done so many stuff with horses now yeah and when you have a situation where your actor can't ride or where they're not allowed to ride for insurance purposes or whatever it really really like handicaps you mm. um, it's just it's just a pain in the ass so it's like if you've got an actor who can get on a horse and just like ride out a shot mm. brilliant love it yeah but I've um... I've been Oxbow. I've revisited Oxbow Incident recently. Yeah, the sort of first anti-Western, I suppose you'd call it, wouldn't you? Um, I, I guess it's certainly, and yeah, it's like the inverse of Twelve Angry Men. It's twelve men who are about to say these people are guilty, so let's kill them. Yeah, <laughs> I, I certainly I call upon. I think a lot of my kind of Western, my love of westerns. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of what I did with Centurion as well, where like I I drew all, I drew an awful lot from my Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Um, of them being chased through the wilderness by, you know, the posse, the super posse um, uh, with that movie. So it was kind of like, I think I've just got a secret love of Westerns that, you know, I'm just itching to make a Western. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My my latest one was it was uh, that I picked up in, in me sort of watching was uh, Val, Valquez is Coming, the Burt Lancaster one from 71. Yep. Which yep. 
I just I, I can't believe I missed it. It's it's nigh on perfect, yeah. I think. No, that's a that's a great one. That's a great one. Um I also got um I got a lovely Blu-ray last year of Ulzana's Raid. Oh, I've got I've not got a Blu-ray one. of it. I've got I've got it on I've got that's I've got that queued up. Yeah. That's a great one. That's Bert Lancaster. That's fabulous. But there's there's something there's something about the because the, I guess it's un, Britain's underpopulated at the time you're setting your movies. So you've got this kind of sense of nobody's t- nobody's connected, but yet there's this thing happening at a national level. Plus, yeah, there is these power brokers, power grabbers who are who are using this other fear factor to, to just land grab. I suppose in many senses. Well, yeah, there's always, there's always going to be people who want to exploit, <laughs> who want to be who are greedy people who want to exploit. It plays into that idea that maybe that was our Wild West because we were kind of civilized, but we weren't sophisticated, if that. Yeah, definitely. Because America's a younger country, isn't it, I suppose? Yeah, no, I, I think there is a sense of the Wild West. I mean, obviously, like, it was the Wild North, East and West and South at, at the <laughs> time. So, uh, um and because everything just would have gone to shit with the plague, hmm. um, and then the following year was the Great Fire of London as well. So um, crazy times. Now there's um, there's a, some absolute frenetic scenes and sequences in uh, in the Reckoning uh, where uh-huh. you uh, you certainly uh, get the get the heart the heart rate going um, good with the action. Uh, is is that is that something? How how was how was it directing Charlotte for the uh, for the more active scenes? Because obviously talking to people acting with each other in conversation is one thing, but then having to choreograph huge movement around space is not quite the same, is it? Uh it's it's different every time. Every every single film presents a different set of problems. So, mm. um, but no, you know, she'd never done anything like that before. You know sword play and horse riding and, and being dropped into lakes and, and all sorts of things like that. And, and, and she really embraced it. You know, mm. and she really got into it. I think she was a little bit dubious at first or, or, or nervous at first of like, you know, you give her a sword and start rehearsing some moves and things like that. And everyone, I think everybody the first time was just a little bit cautious and then slowly but surely she just got completely into it. Um, and I think, you know, it's great. It's, the, the one that we're going to do next is even more of an action movie. Uh, no swords this time, guns. But you know, okay. it's like the next stage of like, how 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 can I punish her even more? <laughs> so looking looking back on the shoot, what would what would you say was if without if this doesn't uh, lead you to giving too many spoilers or anything? But um, what so, what what part of the movie when you were looking at it on page and planning it seemed like this is this is going to be like a a challenge for all of us. But then you pulled well, it I mean, off. What was? Until, what do you remember being a particular challenge on this shoot? Um, I don't know. There were so many. It was like um, there wasn't like every scene had its own complexities for sure. Okay. The the scene where we that, that we had to burn down the house. Um, you know, I knew that. I, I was like, how what? How much actual burning can we do? With actors, how much actual burning can we do at all? Like when we have to hold back the burning to the last possible minute, because as it turned out, like the moment we like set fire to that house, it just went. It had been sitting there in the sun for like weeks, so it was so dry. So like the moment that we we set that fire, like thank, thankfully we had like three cameras on it because it just went up in seconds, uh, and that was definitely a one take deal. It wasn't a case of like starting it and then stopping it. It was just like it went whoosh and it was gone. So there. Uh, 
that was a little bit nervous and you know, nerve wracking. And that was one of the last things that we did. Mm. I think that was the, the penultimate night. And the next day was when we threw Charlotte in the lake and literally did the, the last, the last shot of the movie was the last shot that we shot. Right. Of the movie. Okay. Um, which has actually happened to me twice now. That's the second time that's happened, but um, it's kind of interesting that you do the last shot on the last day. <laughs> um, there was any number of things. There was horse scenes or there was, um, how we were going to do the whole escape from the castle. And, you know, when conceiving these things, um, not really knowing what that castle was going to be or how it was going to, you know, where we were going to find a castle, what we could do with the castle. Once we had the sets and could picture it all and put it all together and give it a scale that we didn't even think we were going to get originally. Mm. Um, and then, you know, things like the devil, you know, that was always going to be tricky. Um, what was What was the design process for that? Is that because obviously I imagine that's not on the page exactly, is it? That's something that happens, sort of. No, I mean I had a concept for it, and I brought in a a concept artist called Paul Gerard. Okay, and he did amazing sketches of this devil idea. And like as I was saying, I don't want him to be red. I don't want him to be like that. I think if anything, he's going to be kind of gaunt and pale and sickly mm. looking. And you know, how can we do that? But at the same time. We wanted a little bit traditional. We wanted to have horns and things like that. And then those designs got passed on to Connell Palmer, who did the actual makeup effects for the devil. And he took that and he rejigged it a bit and he had his own ideas. Cause I think every, for every you know, makeup effects artist, the devil is like one of those boxes to tick is like, Oh, we get to do the actual devil this time. <laughs> you know, so it was a real dream come true for him. So he had his, he had very strong ideas and he took what we had and took it even further and developed it. And then, um, you know, we got uh, Ian White to play the devil. So we have this wonderful seven foot tall guy who's like really ripped and stuff like that. So the, we didn't need to do much with his body as such. It was more the facial and the horns and everything like that. Um, so it all kind of came together. It's just, it's a, it's a process. You know? And in, but in that process, are you, are you closely involved? Does it does it go away and come back to you as sort of more closer to finished all the time? Like you've got like your clear idea to start I, with. I, I stay a hundred percent involved all the time. So yeah, I I don't I don't want to miss a beat. <laughs> <laughs> when when it comes to something as important as the devil. Um yeah. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, because I imagine then for people who are creating it, it is that it is the kind of notch on the bedpost, isn't it? To have I've created the devil. <laughs> it is. It's but I you know, I you know, I totally respect that. I wanted that to be a little kind of dream come true for them and like to get excited and giddy about what yeah. they get to do with the devil. And then when we saw him on set, you know, for the first time, it was like, oh my God, this is exactly what I wanted. Yeah. Hi, this is Stuart, the host, just cutting in as this interview was recorded back in January when the release date for The Reckoning was the middle of February and was delayed owing to the pandemic as many other films have in the last 12 months or so and just to say that The Reckoning is in cinemas and on digital from the 16th of April 2021 before you go anything you, you mentioned about the uh, the action film with guns anything you, else you can tell us about what that is and where that, where that, where that is at the moment uh, not at the moment it's, it's like I suppose with actually with, with the, the Reckoning was um a way for me to kind of return to my roots of doing a horror movie. Okay. Um, and it was also a way for me to kind of creatively like purge my soul after 
what had gone before and how completely miserable that experience was. Mm. Um, this was something in which I had a hundred percent like creative control over, even if it was the sacrifice was having no money, but like, you know, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, that's yeah, the price you've got to, you've got to pay. You know, you're always going to do the deal with the devil. Okay. I'll give you your creative control, but I'm going to take away all your money. Um, and, uh, finding that balance and like, Oh, obviously we had, we had some money, but just, just enough to get it made. And, uh, so, you know, that, that was a, a, a purging of my soul a little bit. And so with the next one, I'm kind of very much kind of going back to my dog soldiers roots of doing a full on kind of action horror movie, blood guts. I mean, you know, the reckoning by my standards is, is positively restrained. There's a couple of like choice deaths in it, choice moments. Yeah. 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 There's a cat. I, I didn't want to do, I don't, I don't want to spoil it for anyone that's not seen it, but yeah, there is a, Definitely a squelch or two. Yeah, yeah. There's a good squelch, but you know, I want to get back into spraying blood around the set and firing yeah. machine guns and blowing stuff up, and uh, in a in a in a yeah, a new take on you know soldiers and monsters and things like that. Oh well, we welcome that. We welcome that. Uh, it Should just gives fun. me it just gives me then to say thank you very much for giving us your time on the Britflix podcast. Ah, oh, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. The sickness hangs over the city like putrid fog. Bodies are piled high in the narrow streets. It's as if the day of judgment has finally arrived. I'll give you some advice. Leave town while you can. I saw her the other day. She was acting bloody peculiar. There's only one thing that can explain it. She made a pact with the devil. Nowhere to run, witch. What's that to me? They'll try to break you. Like they did to the rest of us. Fear not, my child. Salvation is at hand. There's something wicked at work in that place. She has the devil inside her. My will is greater than yours. We'll see.
another season of The Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find The Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com.